Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Inflation and a stagnant economy, that's stagflation, and it looks like we're heading to both of those in many parts of the world, almost certainly in the UK, perhaps in America as well. So what do we do about it? As we'll hear this time, it's different. So can you apply the same cure? Does the cure work anyway? I mean, central banks seem to think that pushing up interest rates will fix the inflation part of the equation, and maybe supply chains will fix themselves, and that's going to help too. But does lower inflation and supplies returning to normal, does that mean that the economy will start growing again? We are certainly in uncertain times. So what next? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, if you take uh, May the 5th as the benchmark, that is when there were the most Google searches for the term stagflation. So if you set that as an index of 100 and you go back to February, the index on stagflation searches then was around 7, 7 to 10. So that's how quickly this stagflation fear has gone from 10 to 100 uh, in in just a, a couple of months. So we weren't even thinking about it at the end of last year. But there is now that, Steve, this growing assumption that the world is heading for a recession and there's nothing central banks can do to stop it, even though they perhaps think they can. In fact, arguably, you could say, you know, they're helping bring it forward because they're pushing up interest rates. So recession with inflation, is uh, that is what stagnation is. How do we, uh, do you think, we're, do you think, well, okay, what is the definition? Do you think we're, a uh, load of questions for you. So I'm just going to go off and have a coffee. I'm going to load you up with the question, Steve. So, um, so do you think, what is that the definition of stagflation? Do you think we're going to get it and how do we fight it? We're going to go back and let's go back in history because the, the first period of so-called stagflation is what led to the state of economics today because the fact that you had uh, rising prices and rising unemployment uh, that's fundamentally the definition of stagflation that came in in the uh, in the early 70s uh, yeah. and, and, and according to uh, the conventional interpretation of Keynesian economics that wasn't possible because uh, what you what you had in um, in economic management was a belief in what was called the Phillips curve and this yeah. was the result of research by a New Zealand engineer turned economist Bill Phillips who was one of the brightest and best humans have ever existed I better I emphasize that um, who was an engineer who wanted to bring engineering concepts across to economics sound familiar Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so he was bringing the whole idea of dynamic systems, feedback loops, uh, all the stuff that I built in my Minsky software. He was doing back in the 50s, and he was literally doing it uh, He made uh, by making a, a water-based computer, and he made an analog computer before he actually had digital. He made an analog computer that was capable of modeling the economy using capacitors and resistors and so on for changing electric levels and all this sort of jazz. Now, as part of his model, he presumed that there'd be rising what he called factor prices uh, during periods of high economic activity. And that's pretty much what we were talking about on the last podcast. Uh, when you had a, a booming economy, then there would be a possibility of, of, of high prices for oil, 
okay, uh, out of the boom, and also with low unemployment, high price for labour. So he literally hand-drew this idea of a, a non-linear relationship. Uh, uh, below a certain level of economic activity, uh, prices would be fairly constant. This is prices for uh, labour and capital, and for labour and, uh, and, and raw material inputs. And then when you got a boom, those prices would go up quite sharply. And so he then went to check the data to see if he could verify this using English data on unemployment and the rate of change of money wages. So it wasn't it wasn't the rate of inflation. It was the rate of change of money wages that he correlated with the level of unemployment. And he actually had to go back and assemble data from trade unions because back in he went back to I think it was 1860, 18, I think it was eighteen sixty one or eighteen sixty three through to nineteen seventeen was his mm. first data set. And back in those days, the government did not record how many people were unemployed, but the trade unions knew how many of the members were out of work because you're out of work, you didn't have to pay union Jews, so they kept the records that way. So he assembled all this data on the unemployment level of unemployment, and then he correlated to the rate of change of money wages, and that data was collected, again, fairly haphazardly. Uh, you had to put a few price series together. And what he got was exactly the sort of thing he expected to get of a very nonlinear relationship between the level of unemployment and the rate of change of money wages. And this was all to explain a, uh, a, a to, to put numbers on an element, element he'd literally draw, drawn of a certain a circuit diagram of a feedback effect that would change the rate of inflation, largely given by the rate of unemployment. Uh, but uh, what he, and this is why I get so annoyed when I see neo, neoclassical economists saying things like the, uh, you know, the Phillips curve is dead, blah, blah, blah. In his paper where he put those statistical numbers together, he said there were three factors that determine the rate of change of money wages. One was the rate of level of unemployment. Two was the rate of change of unemployment. So he said if you had unemployment uh, rising, then that would temper wage demands, even though the level of unemployment might be quite high. A level of, un of, a, a level of unemployment might be quite low. If it's rising, that will temper wage demands. So you had a, a, a first-order effect, the, the level of unemployment, a second-order effect, the rate of change of unemployment. And the third factor is, is what he, he described in terms of uh, import prices rising, and that's pretty much where your, your oil and coal comes in. Because he said that uh, um, there would be cost of living adjustments, yeah. uh, through, and that would cause, and he literally, I think, he has in his question a wage price spiral. Now, this is exactly what we spoke about later, as as, as what caused the, the so-called demise of the Phillips curve. But it, it it wasn't; it was nowhere near as simplistic as the garbage that neoclassical economists. But isn't that exactly? Isn't that exactly where we are now? So we're we getting. Have, well, yeah, I, 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 there's also some, the supply yeah. chain difficulties as well. But I mean, part of it is. Yeah, but, but but a chunk of it as well is the fact that people are asking for higher wages because there are so many jobs for what for whatever reason the Great Resignation, uh, mm -hmm. you know, labor labor markets are very tight. And yeah, uh, and, and, then, and then when you look back historically, this this period because the the, the 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 mistake that Phillips did make. Uh, it was a throwaway line in the middle of his paper where he said that it looks like there's a trade-off between unemployment and the rate of inflation. If you want to have a high rate of, uh, a low rate of unemployment, you have to have a high rate of inflation and vice versa. And it made it like a menu and he actually gave a couple of choices. If you wanted, I think if you wanted stable consumer prices, you needed a 5.5% rate of unemployment in the UK. If you wanted stable factor prices, you wanted a 3.5%, you wanted a 7.5% rate of unemployment. 
climate, something of that right. nature. So central banks what, had so central banks heard that and read that and then said, well, okay, well, well, that, that, that's easy. Then we'll just yeah, if we want to yeah, get inflation down, we'll just destroy jobs. In, in yeah, effect, is what. Yeah, and effectively, it made it look like there was a simple trade-off. Choose one number, you get the other. Okay? Mm. And then when, with the crazy thing is when, when Phillips did that data from 1863 to 1917, I think it was, uh, he then used the, the – he, he, to derive the, the curve that he used, he, he was using a handheld calculator. He actually had to borrow a calculator from – I think it was UCL, I'm not sure. Borrow a calculator from the university he was at. He was the head of school. Uh, take it over on the, on the weekend and crunch the numbers by hand. And, of course, he – he had about 60 data points, and that was just too damn hard back in the 50s with a manual calculator. So he summarised it down to seven data ranges, and out of the seven, he got an average for the unemployment rate, an average for the rate of money change of money wages, and then fitted a logarithmic curve to that. And then when he'd used that curve to data later from 1917 through to, uh, I think, 1956, uh, then if the, the data with a couple of obvious exceptions which were easily explained, fitted that 1861 to 1917 data like a glove. And when it came up, he said, great, here's the simple, all the economic management, all we need to do is worry about one, these two variables and choose the numbers we want. Now, that was no, in, and Phillips, when he saw this happening, said that if he knew how his research would use, he would never have done it. Yeah. Mm. So this is the sort of intellectual corruption that lies at the heart of modern economic uh, management. Well, so, it's not it's not too uh, complicated to understand what's happening right now, though, is it? We've got supply chain difficulties, which are pushing up the prices of goods, including the price of uh, the price of energy, which has got the knock on effect. And one of those knock on effects is is as well, because we've got a tight labour market, is that people are able to choose where they work plus so they so they're asking for higher wages plus they have to ask for higher wages because everything's going up in price and so it goes yeah. on how do, so uh, does that does that create stagflation though but, but it, it's it's again more complicated than uh, the, the, this very fundamental differences between what happened in the 70s and what happened what's happening now uh, mm. but the, the, the symptoms can look the same well unemployment the, the unemployment level is very different for fundamental right. stagflation but unemployment was rising yeah. Okay. Now, we're, we're, and so when we're saying stagflation now, uh, where's the stag coming from and all that? It's the supply chain hassles, yeah. the yeah. breakdown of the supply chain. And that's only going to get worse. Uh, if we, well, COVID, I think, is going to be for us. You know, we're, we've stuffed up COVID completely. It's, 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 it's going to be an endemic pandemic uh, from now on, and that will forever be hitting people's capacity to work. So there'll be insufficient labour caused by a breakdown of the supply system, the whole length of the supply chain, which is one reason why inflation fell so much, because we're exploiting low wages and, and, and low environmental standards in the third world for so long. That itself was breaking down anyway, because now China's got which is the biggest sure source by far, has had quite a comfortable standard of living for most people. So the, the cheap wage side of that is gone, but the long supply chain still exists. Well, that's being broken down. We've got Shanghai being shut down by COVID right now. Um, mm, so all these things, yeah. and Beijing yeah. as well coming through. So all this stuff is, is brand new. Uh, it looks the same, but it's very different. And what's left out of it all, of course, is the role of finance. So when you look back and say, what caused the stagflation in the 70s, 
1970s, Milton Friedman's argument was that it's uh, because of changing expectations. And that's why he got all this, pardon me, I've got to use a technical all this shit coming out of central banks about managing inflationary expectations. Because in Milton Friedman's theory, what caused prices to rise was expectations that prices were going to rise. And mm. so you had to get expectations right. You'll see the word expectations. It's almost used as weakly as the word the uh, in, 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 in papers by central bankers. Well, we can ignore him this time, can't we, completely? Uh, thank he's, goodness. He's, he's because this, because and that's the trouble. He's a zombie. But none of this die. was expected. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't any expectation. People now are demanding higher wages because prices are going up. You know, it's mm, no expectation mm. of prices going up. Prices are, are going, going up. up. Yeah. It's, and it's, so it's there's not, this lag yeah. effect. They're actually asking for more money because they need it to try and stay alive, to try and stay yeah, afloat. Yeah. Yeah, and then they've got some bargaining power because, uh, you know, the, the employers, even though they haven't got enough workers to produce what they need to produce, because some of them are on sick leave, they need others to come in and take their place. So uh, it, it, is a, it is a bizarre new situation. It is not, it, it's having some of the similar appearances to the 70s, but it's got a very different set of causes. Right, so we can't really call it stagflation because it's not the same as stagflation yeah, as it, it was. It, it, yeah, it, well, what's going to happen historically is that people will label them the same way. Okay. Mm. And then, and then, what you'll get is two very different ex- experiences. Will be given the same sets of causes, and probably the same shit explanation coming from Milton Friedman will be used for both. But Milton got the first one wrong, and he'd get this one wrong as well. Because what actually caused the collapse, uh, the, 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 the rising unemployment, that went the rising prices in the in the seventies, can be related to the burst of the first major private debt bubble, uh, because you had a, a huge private debt bubble giving huge credit based demand. And largely driven through, as usual, as, Robert, as Richard Vague points out all the time, housing bubbles uh, in the West, uh, quite widespread housing bubbles. That then crashed, that credit-based demand plunged, and that went rising unemployment. But at the same time, you'd had this period of high demand leading up to it, again, credit-financed, leading to high wages and then a flow-through of high, uh, high uh, oil prices. And part of that was also driven by the Yom Kippur War, when the um, OPEC decided to flex its muscles and refused to supply countries that had supported Israel. So the oil price went from $2.50 to $10 a barrel, uh, courtesy of the embargo. Now, um, there, there's a similarity in the sense that now we've got a uh, insufficient supply of oil, uh, but that's coming out of the supply chain breakdown, not out of political action by OPEC. Um, mm. But so the, but we, we had a collapse, we had collapsing investment demand with a momentum in the price system, gave us what happened back in the 70s. And now what we've got is a collapse in the production system. There's not much yeah investment going on it's not and it's not debt financed as much as it was back in the 70s yeah well we've got uh, you know this is the, the, this is one of your feedback loops to go into your model yeah. steve we've we've got the, the situation where oil companies are now saying well actually uh, we can't extract enough oil because we haven't got enough workers and enough investment uh, you know because there's rising prices of, of labor is making mm. it too expensive for us to extract some of some of this oil so actually they're extracting less oil and of course they would extract less oil because the less oil they extract the higher the price they can sell for the stuff that they are getting so uh, so of course you know they extract less because it's uh, the labor costs are too high to extract more that pushes oil prices up you get in, mm. you get inflation people ask for higher wages because prices are going up that that's a feedback loop Yep, yep, yep. And uh, again, we're navigating through it, but according to economists, as if the economy is in equilibrium. You know, mm. I mean, this is this is 
surely uh, this is one of the times to start laughing at the whole idea of modelling capitalism as it's an equilibrium. Nobody's on their feet at the moment. We're all getting our, no- our knees knocked uh, you know, by shocks from left, right and bloody centre. And and you're not going to be anywhere near that equilibrium point. So uh, they're trying to analyse it that way with their inflationary expectations, etc., etc. That's what central banks are doing, they're putting up interest rates. But when you look at what actually caused the inflation to stop in the um, in the 70s, it was Vockler's interest rate rises. And rather yeah. than that, having the effect that Milton said, which would you be able to adjust their expectations downwards and there'd be a gentle decline or a bit of a rise in unemployment and then a fall in prices, inflation and so on and so forth, back down to the equilibrium well, it the, situation. It was the early 80s, wasn't it? In fact, when Volcker sort of pushed yeah. America yeah, it was, it was the, it was the biggest recession. recession since the Great Depression. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 but I mean, people then, are talking about that now as though it was a great thing. You know, fifteen percent. Yeah. Uh, inflation was almost fifteen percent, so he pushed interest rates up to actually got up to twenty one and a half percent. Decimated the uh, construction sector, farming in America. Uh, you know, industry generally. There was the the, re- the recession, but people look and say, yeah, but after we had that, things returned to normal. Demand came back, interest rates were lowered. Mm. You know, so some of the, so they're saying, well, job done, well done, Volcker. We need we need to we might need to do that again. We might need to feel the hurt of a of a recession. But if we did that, would we come out of it like we did then? Not now, because what we're doing is also unwinding the whole low-cost structure that applied during the period of expanding globalisation. So if you go back to the, the 70s when Bockler was, you know, 80s when Bockler was doing it, you literally had the very, very first major free trade zones being built in the third world. There were, there were plenty before had they started in the 70s, uh, but they were done in such a fashion that the, um, the companies would, uh, as wage rises rose in one country relative to another, they'd simply up, up and pull their capital equipment and move to the other company and uh, country, and you didn't have a sustained impact of industrialization in the third world to provide a su- supply chain across to the West. But what the Chinese did, and I literally, I, I, I was... I went to ground zero of this in 1981, in November, December 81. I met the uh, uh, people who established the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone just outside Hong Kong. And their concept, this is with a group of Australian journalists that I took on a tour over there um, to, meet, to meet Chinese journalists. And the, the, the way that the trade zone was set up was that uh, to actually establish a company in the true free trade zone and take advantage of incredibly low wages. Like, you know, you'd pay a Chinese worker as much for a month at that stage, roughly speaking, mm. as you'd pay an American work, worker for a day. Um, so there was a huge cost advantage to the companies that took advantage right. of this. But those days are gone. Well, no, that. They, all, they, they had to have a, a Chinese partner and the Chinese partner had to own 50% of the business within five years. Yeah. Okay, to but those, the but those, those days are those days those of low days gone. Over, gone. Yeah, yeah. gone. But, but what has so, happened is that meant China built this long-term supply chain. Yeah. So rather than yeah, flicking yeah. around, you know, and just exploiting cheap wages, cheap wages here and there, you've got this really highly structured, very low-cost uh, production system, which uh, we are we, pulling apart now. Which we, you know, we are. And, yeah. Yeah. And therefore, so, the cost so, of production so it, have to it, rise. Yeah, but is that? But I mean, they only have to rise to a point, don't they? So we've got high inflation because we are going through this transition to this, you know, to this new world, which could be a good thing, couldn't it? I mean, if if prices go up, but then they stop going up, so inflation is high because it's just a point in time. Couldn't they settle back down again because we get to these new higher levels of production costs? Everything costs more. Maybe wages haven't kept pace with that because they just can't. Uh, so we don't get that that upward wage spiral. We'd get to a position where it might actually be a good thing that we actually say, well, okay, we can't afford to consume as much. We are chewing up 
less of the planet's resources because higher prices means we're buying less. I mean, it could be a good thing, couldn't it? Yeah, well, it could. That's my kumbaya moment. We always have a kumbaya <laughs> moment on this podcast. That's my kumbaya <laughs> moment this week. I'm, I'm being the Grinch today uh, because we, we have, we're, we're trying to sustain a massive level of overconsumption of the planet's resources. And mm. we therefore... It's not, it's not going to work. If we continue doing it, then the, the climate will destroy our productive capabilities as it changes too radically for our sedentary civilization to, to maintain itself. You know, we'll, we'll get wheel seals washed away and then burnt dry. Uh, and then you, where you want to move to doesn't have the topsoil you need to have to produce the alternative. So you'll have a plunge in output that way. And that therefore means lower living standards. And the question is, can you sustain Western societies if you have a plunge in the living standards of the poor. And to some extent, what we saw in the Arab Spring, uh, I think answers that in the negative uh, yeah. if, you, if you start applying it in the West. So it's, it's not going to be a good thing because... Well, you've got to look after the answers. You've got to look after the poor, haven't you? So I mean, the, the big problem is that you know, if we, we rely on central banks to try and fix everything, it really is a sledgehammer approach. Yeah, uh, because so all, yeah, they're putting up the interest rate and that's all they've got. And then yeah. this, this is where I said the economic theory. So, a fis- so surely, so mm-hmm. so surely, a fiscal approach is a better way. You know, where yeah. we, yeah. Uh, you know, we 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 need to tax the the rich so they they stop buying yachts. Uh, you know, we could tax the living daylights out of them. But those who, people on low income who are struggling through a recession, as we were talking about last week, you know, who can't afford to keep their house, pay their pay their their fuel bills. You know, we should uh, make sure that they are getting the support they need. So it's you know, so the when they try, you know, the the problems that they saw in Paris, people were protesting because. Uh, there was an attempt to try and change our behaviour when it came to, um, you know, con- consumption, and it was hitting the poor. So we just need to make sure it doesn't hit the poor; it hits the rich, and that has to be a it can only be done through taxation, surely. Or the idea of, I've been developing with uh, Adam Hardy of a um, universal carbon credit. It's yeah. a parallel pricing system. That 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 is one way to cope with it. But yeah, overall, the the cost of production was driven too low by globalisation and by too cheap energy and mm. now we've got a breakdown of both of those happening at much the same time so the, the, the cost structure has to rise and that's not something that interest rates can control and this is where again economists have led us up the garden path or over a desert path closer to it and that is that they in their theories which developed after Milton Friedman you know, jumped in and and, and, and t- try to assassinate Keynes by assassinating Phillips. Um, they built uh, their models, their dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models, presume that the uh, inflation rate is set by inflationary expectations and the interest rate is what we all use. We all sit down and calculate, you know, decide, decide what to consume based on the interest rate. Mm. Okay? Like mm. I've, I've forgotten the term. They've got the Euler equation. I think they're insulting another great mathematician. Um, but the idea is they have their, our consumption is based on us planning the uh, an infinite consumption pattern. You now we we sit down and we plan for the infinite future because uh, we're rational and rational means you know the future and you can predict it and, and you, you plan for the in- infinity. I'm not joking. These guys, I mean, as I ever said, so, you know, Amsterdam was fun, but they didn't give drugs out that good in Amsterdam. But this is the nonsense <laughs> they come up with. Well, so, they've got that crazy idea, haven't they, that if interest rates are low, yeah. then we are going to consume more because, we, cause, cause, cause we've got more money because, uh, cause, you know, we're paying less on our mortgages. I know in the fact that their mortgages are higher because the house prices are so much higher because the interest rates are low. Yeah, but so they're, they're just completely ignoring the impact on on asset markets, what they're saying is mm. that very 
lowering the interest rate varies our desire to consumption over the infinite future. And therefore, mm. when you change the interest rate, you're affecting people's consumption decisions, and they then assume that the, the you know, supply will, will, will come no, no matter what. Um, and you'll have less demand, so you'll get lower rate of inflation. And therefore, they've, what they've got is a model which is completely wrong and completely useless in the current situation. So they put up interest rates, that will crush demand, not in the way they're thinking at all. It just means people won't be able to spend as much on on um, for goods and services they are paying more money on their financial costs, which don't turn up in consumption, by the way, and the way, the way consumption is measured. Um, so that'll cause a plunge in demand. But at the same time, the suppliers will have no choice but to put their prices up because their carrying costs will be higher. So if you've got, if you've got a, you know, not only is the supply chain broken down, you're paying demurrage costs uh, on, on the goods which you can't get out of the shipping yards fast enough and you can't get from China fast enough and consequently your prices rise. So we're going we, to get rising interest rates and rising inflation and that's going to be the stagflation for the neoclassicals. But do we need stuff to drive the economy. So if we look at, and I'm sure this is the same around the world, UK's domestic material consumption, which is the total amount of materials that are directly used by the economy. Uh, So this is calculated as domestic extraction of minerals plus imports minus exports. That's gone from 739 million metric tonnes in 2000 down to 569 million metric tonnes in 2018. So we are, even though the economy is growing we are consuming less materials because and now this is of course this is based on you know weight and a lot of materials like uh, you know the uh, the minerals we use for mobile phones don't weigh very much so i'm sure mm-hmm. that has some sort of influence influence on this but we also have a growing service sector so that is less material based you know the uh, you know we 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 spend money in cafes and you know rather than buying stuff so isn't there a potential where stuff is more expensive goods just are more expensive and you know we go through a transition period because supply chains are shorter but more expensive uh, and we just value what we get that little bit more but actually our lifestyle is more you know driven by the service sector so there's, that, there's that, less need for consumption that's the whole idea that we're decoupling you know, is GDP is decoupling from energy consumption and like it, it can be true in some parts of the world but it's untrue in others uh, if you know if you're uh, if you're getting improving living standard in Thailand you go out and buy an air conditioner okay you you mm. don't go and buy a subscription to Netflix so uh, at the, the individual level yes you can find those effects and they'll be more prominent in the advanced countries <coughs> than they are in the third world but there's so much of the world that aspires to the living standard the west has that more than counteracts the other side so when i do my correlations of the change in energy and change in gdp i get a correlation coefficient up in the 0.8 range uh, for the two and and pretty much it's one for one so a change in gdp is a change in energy and one can drive the other obviously you can have experiences like the uh, uh, the 70s oil boom when the decline in energy caused a decline in in gdp Uh, you can have others where the uh, like the the 2008 and 8 crisis where the decline in gdp caused a decline in energy consumption but fundamentally, they're, they're, they're Siamese twins. And the whole idea that they're separating, uh, you know, is, is based on looking at just one tiny part of a global system. In de- right, in developing nations. But you're saying that's in developing nations. 
Are you accepting yeah. that in, in, in developed nations, it, you know, th- this... It, it's happening, uh, but nowhere near as fast as people think. And if we see, mm. if we see looking at you, how we're going to have mentioned Midge and Marge in the last uh, podcast, uh, if you find prices rising so much that people, uh, you know, simply can't afford energy uh, then it's their material consumption of other things that's going to go down there's, there is, and, and then if your energy with prices drop their material consumption will go up the, the well it's a throwaway we, yeah, it's a throwaway cult- huh? but it's a throwaway culture's part of this isn't it and if, if yeah. things became so, so expensive it were made better so we didn't have that throwaway culture I mean that would be a step forward and that's where you get to get into you know the alternative that maybe you don't buy stuff uh, you rent stuff, so you don't buy a car. You rent a car, and the car company then goes, right, well, now we're renting this. Uh, we want it to last as long as possible. We really want to sweat the asset that we've created here, so we're going to make a car that lasts for a long time. And, and you're also you know, going to have but- car sharing, and you know that sort of thing is feasible, true. Um, but uh, it's still... like If we want to go, for example, from a totally fossil fuel-based economy to a totally... Um, uh, minerals based you know electric cars and photovoltaic mm. cells and so on that's an enormous demand for physical material uh, there's like there's you know I think the UK might have something like you know 50 million cars half a million sure. of which are yeah are, yeah are but I mean I, I, and we've talked about that in the past and that that is definitely an issue when we're looking at you know energy consumption but you know I gave the point where we you know in the UK we have reduced the amount of uh, material consumption uh, and you know we can do the same with 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 energy consumption as well if we're just Satisfied with with less, which gets back, you know, back to that, uh, you know, do we look at subscription type models? Do we look at uh, more service orientation than consuming stuff? It's just getting over consuming, you know, and we don't charge to chuck stuff away, you know, so we could we could base the economy on that as well. I think the point I'm trying to make in all of this is if we if we are seeing the inflation, the price of things going up, will we reach a point where we just reach a, a new level? And could we could we benefit from this? And we reach a new level where everything is more expensive, which means we consume less of it. Uh, and you know, the ultimate winner out of all of that is is obviously the planet. Are we? Are we? You know, could we be going through that right now? Could this be the start of it? I think it is the start of it. So I look on that front. Yeah, I agree. Um, but the trouble is, I don't think it's going to be done in a peaceful fashion. And mm. uh, you know, and, and you, you always ruin it, Steve. Always uh, ruin it. You always ruin it. There we are. We're that. having a come-by moment, and now you're starting <laughs> World War Three. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and that's a possibility in terms of resource availability and resource wars. Um, and it, it, it also, you, again, you can't have it. You can't have another uh, Gilets Jaunes event uh, driven by imposing these costs on the poor. So the level yeah. of inequality we've got has to be reversed, and that's uh, going to be a very big ask for. Uh, for Western societies, which have let inequality explode in the last 40 years, to say we've got to control it or we break down. And what central banks are doing right now, is it, uh, are they making the situation worse or are they, is it just irrelevant? I mean, uh, the, uh, I think they're making it worse because, uh, you know, as I said, they, we're likely to get rising interest rates and rising inflation at the moment because mm. when, you, when, you, when you've got a, a long supply chain, uh, which has to be financed, you're paying demurrage costs and, you know, the other elements 
of the financial side of international uh, uh, transfers of goods, uh, then those are going to be rising and they'll be passed on to the consumer. So uh, just like the 1970s was seen as the breakdown of the Phillips curve, and wrongly so, uh, because it came back after Vockler's crushed the, uh, the, the negative relationship between unemployment and the rate of inflation came back in spades after Vockler crushed the economy back in 81, 82. Um, this time around, we're likely to see rising interest rates and rising inflation, and that's hopefully going to consign the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models that dominate central banks to the garbage bin of history, which is where they should have stayed. Yeah. Well, no, they'll always find an excuse, won't they, that uh, this time it's... Yeah, di- they will. This time yeah. it's different, they will say. Mm. But um, mm. what, what would be the effect of rising... If interest rates rise... I mean that 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 I guess that does theoretically uh, destroy demand, doesn't it? Yeah, which is the same as inflation. It does. So we've got a, a double whammy of, but it, but more to the point. It'll demand but, while prices rise. Right, but I mean, but okay, but prices are prices are going to destroy demand as well. Surely, actually, the, uh, the the impact of rising interest rates is going to be more the the finance sector and people with big houses are going to feel it the most. Yeah, and that's 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 feasible. Uh, the, the mortgage belt, people have bought into rising asset prices are going to find those assets are much harder to sustain. So it will be the potentially the aspirational classes rather than the renters who cop it in that. And that's about time. <laughs> and we're and we're seeing and we're seeing share and we're seeing share prices. You know, starting to to tank as well um, because oh, it's a fun been, time in finance markets right now. So, yeah, but I mean, I'm, but I'm so, so. Do we care? Is this my question? That side of it, we we, we care. We, we care we, about we, Marge we, we, having we, difficulty because prices of everything is going up, and her pension's not going up by the same amount. But do we really care about uh, those people who've uh, got share portfolios that are losing value? No, I think well, we, we're going to be forced to care because they're the ones who control the, the, the currently in control of the mechanics of the economy. Um, so their you know, their protest is going to be heard in Whitehall uh, far more than the protests of Madge and Midge and Marge. Um, and but yeah, ultimately, we've, we've, the, the, the reversal of inequality has to um, has mm. to involve a decline in the in the consumption levels of the rich, and it can't involve much of a decline in the consumption levels of the poor. Well, I tell you, uh, if you are if you are looking at what to take out, I mean, you would it would be pretty hard, wouldn't it, after this year uh, to look back and not think that actually uh, the uh, income imbalance is something that has to be addressed. Yeah. Yeah, that's because it's become so extreme. We put it too, we put it off too far, and now it's all happening in the middle of a, a climate breakdown as well. So yeah, we, we've set ourselves up for a wonderful set of problems, which because central banks are unable to solve. And as you said earlier, it's going to be fiscal policy that comes back, which should never have gone away in yeah, the first yeah. place. Uh, which means that uh, yeah, government's getting into debt, uh, central banks buying bonds. Uh, yeah, go, welcome back QE. Uh, Not so much QE, but, but welcome back fiscal deficits, which then enable Madge and Midge and Marge to buy their uh, energy consumptions and their basic commodities. Easy to solve, Steve. We could do that in a weekend. Um, all right, with a, with a calculator. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll catch you again very soon. Thank you. Welcome, mate. Okay. Actually, even from conventional economists, I'm hearing more and more people saying, well, the answer to all of this is a fiscal solution the government has got to spend to help the, uh, the poor get through this crisis. That's it for today. Back again with another Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen next week. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for your time this morning. We'll catch you again soon. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.